for Tuesday, January 5th, 2021. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, dozens of public health leaders across the U.S. have left their jobs during the COVID-19 pandemic because of pressure from elected officials and some segments of the public. This is not the last new pandemic, and it's certainly just one of many infectious diseases. And public health is the part of our government that's supposed to fend those off when they come. Anna Barry Jester, a reporter with Kaiser Health News, joins me to discuss what the backlash against public health officials could mean for our ability to fight COVID-19 and future pandemics. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. Over the course of the pandemic, state and local public health officials have stepped into the spotlight, offering advice on how to slow the spread of the coronavirus. That, in many cases, has put them in the middle of a political storm, writes Anna Barry Jester and colleagues from Kaiser Health News and the Associated Press. That's from a recent piece looking at how that backlash has put those officials and their powers in jeopardy. Here to talk about all of it is Anna Barry Jester from Kaiser Health News. Anna, thanks for talking with me. Yeah, it's great to be with you. So you and your colleagues, through your reporting, have found that at least 181 state and local public health department leaders have either resigned, retired, or have been fired during the pandemic. That's in response to a lot of negative attention that they've gotten from some segments of the public for doing their jobs, giving out public health advice. I want to start just by having you tell me a few of these people's stories. What issues did they face? What kind of backlash did they face? And how did that eventually lead to them leaving the field of public health? Yeah, there's so many different pressures that people are facing. So in some cases, it comes from local elected officials. So there was a health officer in Placer County in California who um, the local officials sort of didn't believe the statistics on deaths and on how to manage the virus and the pandemic. And so they actually got rid of the local health emergency and issued a declaration that supported what are basically conspiracy theories around the death count. So there are a lot of people who believe that the deaths you know, attributed to COVID aren't all from COVID and, and things like this. So you know, she felt like 
well, I can't continue in my job if I'm, my expertise is going to be undermined. And this happened just days after she had given public testimony to the elected officials about why those numbers were real and why um, the death counts were what you know the state said they were. In other cases, people have faced pretty extreme threats and intimidation from the public. Again, in California, in Orange County, there was an elected official who somebody got up at a public meeting and read their home address, and then they were having protests at their house and things like that, in addition to receiving death threats that prompted the local county sheriff to give her protections. And so she resigned as well for you know the safety of her family. But this is happening all over the country. It's just very intimidating to receive death threats at your home when you're you know just a sort of a public servant who's not used to this kind of thing. And it's been really, really hard on them emotionally. And, you know, there's the 181 that we wrote about who resigned. That number's actually grown since then already. But there's a ton of people receiving these kinds of threats who've stayed in the jobs, but they are um, really struggling emotionally um, and physically through the pandemic. You actually have counted two exits from the Georgia Department of Public Health. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about those and and who, who those people were who left those positions in Georgia. Yeah, so this is two senior officials who oversee districts um, within the state, and they both resigned very abruptly. The state has declined to comment on the resignations, and neither of them expressed publicly reasons for their resignations. But in both cases, these are people with a lot of experience. Georgia, in particular, is lucky because it is so close to the CDC. A lot of people will do their CDC training and then choose to go work in the Georgia Department of Health. So it's sort of renowned for having a ton of expertise and very high-level training among officials. Both of these um, officials in Georgia had a lot of experience, and they resigned abruptly, um, which is, is exactly the kind of situation that people say fuels sort of a brain drain because it signals to other people that that might be a tricky place to work. I want to pull out a little bit and talk just about the politicization of public health and, and the way we, we've seen that really develop during the pandemic. Trace that evolution for me. How did, how did we get to where we are today? There's certainly been a very fractured and politicized federal response. You know, in the U.S., like so many things, we have a lot of local control. And that's certainly the case with public health, where it's managed either at the very local, you know, city, county level, or in some cases at the state level. But we have, you know, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention right there in Atlanta that offers guidance and really tries to help these, you know, bolster the public health departments. And there's just been a really fractured response. So the federal government, you're hearing from the Trump administration, things that differ from CDC recommendations. And it's, you know, local public health officials who then have to make rules and regulations at the local level to try and stave off the pandemic. And in the meantime, many public health tactics, very routine things like quarantine that are done with some regularity to, you know, beat off infectious diseases, whether it's tuberculosis, hepatitis, other things, mask mandates, these things have become extremely politicized. And there are large groups, although it's definitely a minority, who think that they infringe on personal freedoms. And so because there's this fractured political response. You have public health officials trying to use the best science and make best recommendations that they can, but those now have become very politicized recommendations. 
I want to pick up on something that you said there that, you know, these are things, quarantine contact tracing that public health officials do routinely and really have for decades. But now we have a larger segment of the public who's aware that this is the work that public health officials do and more people than usual are being asked to comply with these rules is kind of the the greater scope of what public health officials are asking. Is that part of the problem here, just that more people are feeling public health officials being inserted into their lives? I think that public health is one of the least understood parts of government. Public health officials, by law and almost all across the country, have a mandate to protect the public health, which is, you know, sort of the community health rather than the individual health. And to do that, you know, they have to do things like track and prevent infectious diseases, but they do a ton of other work. They track water quality. Many work on mosquito and pest abatement. It's a a long list of tasks. Um, Infectious diseases are sort of the most direct and well-known, and even that is something that people don't necessarily understand. So to your point, there are quarantines going on around the country all the time, you know, when there's a little outbreak of measles or other infectious diseases to prevent those outbreaks from getting worse. And now that's being asked of a much broader group of the public. And yes, that has certainly become much more unpopular. Also, the pandemic has dragged on for a very long time and people are facing extreme pressures. You know, families are really struggling financially. A lot of people have lost their jobs. People want to work. People want things to get back to normal. And they're taking it out on on public health officials who their job is to keep the public safe. And they are supposed to prevent infectious disease outbreaks. And doing that right now is very unpopular. From public health officials that I've spoken with here in Georgia, both at the state and at the local level, I've brought up this politicization that we've seen occur during the pandemic. And their response has been, well, public health is always to a certain degree political. Public health agencies rely on elected officials to give them resources, to set budgets and things like that. So what makes this moment different, understanding that public health always has some relationship to politics? Yeah, that's such a great point. I think that uh, a lot of scientists maybe don't even understand that public health really is sort of the intersection of politics and science. And the politics matters. You know, public health officials are accountable to local elected officials and they, you know, play a role in government. And so, yes, it is inherently political. I think this time what's so different is that you have Normally, you have a federal government that really aligns with the CDC, uses that group of experts as the basis for their understanding of how to respond to a crisis. And in this case, that hasn't happened. So you have this very fractured response. And I think that's just put a lot of additional pressures on people. I will say that of the people who've resigned, some of them have been fired for poor performance. It's not to say that public health officials are, you know, across the board doing a fabulous job in the pandemic. But we talked to several historians and legal experts who said that the exodus of public health leadership is completely unprecedented, and this is more politicized than any pandemic they've ever studied. You mentioned that the public health response has not been, on the whole, very successful here in the U.S., just to be fair to these public health agencies, these are organizations that have been disinvested in, underfunded, under-resourced for, for many decades. So in, in some instances, and I, I believe this is reporting that you and your colleagues at Kaiser Health News and the AP have done, just the, the complete lack of investment in many ways in public health over the last few decades. That's right, especially since the 2008 recession when uh, local governments were facing these huge budget shortfalls. 
public health is one of the first things that gets cut. So we found that at least 38,000 state and local public health jobs have disappeared since 2008. And Already, this is a profession that was experiencing huge losses well before this pandemic began. So now there's a leadership vacuum at a time when we're trying to roll out the largest vaccination campaign in U.S. history, for example. There's also a graying of the workforce, if you will. A huge number of people are over 50. And in a recent survey, 50% of local public health workers said they plan to leave the profession, excuse me, in the next five years. And the top reason given was low pay. So it's a loss of jobs, a loss of support for the profession. And then also it's hard to keep a professionalized, you know, experienced, well-trained workforce when pay is so low and they don't have a lot of support from their community. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? I'm Sam Whitehead, talking today with Anna Barry Jester from Kaiser Health News. We're speaking about her recent piece she wrote with colleagues from KHN and the Associated Press about the pandemic backlash that's jeopardizing public health officials' powers and, in some cases, their physical safety. Talking about that kind of lack of of public support, there are some very vocal uh, segments of of the population who are really speaking out against some public health measures. I mean, early on in the pandemic, our listeners may remember the, you know, Liberate Michigan rally, for example, where hundreds and hundreds of people drove in their cars to Lansing, Michigan's capital, to protest lockdowns there. Y'all have actually traced some of this activity to kind of right-wing extremist groups. Tell me a little bit more about that. That's right. There are several right-wing extremist groups that have been really promoting and organizing around rejecting public health officials. And so, as you said, in Michigan, the Liberate Michigan group um, have been storming the Capitol. The local health officer there has received death threats in the mail at home. Um, Her name is Linda Vale. She's a really interesting person. She said that you know, she's really had the support of her local county board and that has made all the difference. But if she didn't have so much experience and so much support, she understands why people would just leave. I mean, you're not getting paid very well. And if you're getting it from all sides, that it's really hard to stay in those jobs. And in Idaho, Eamon Bundy, who's uh, his family is known for leading a standoff against the federal government and uh, um, over ranching rights. He organized what he describes as a network of people who are um, protesting at, at local health departments and trying to fight against mass mandates and that sort of thing. They shoved a public servant at one meeting in, in the Southwest District Health in, in Idaho. And even some of the local officials who describe themselves as extremists, you know, right-wing Republicans, they have said that this has been kind of threatening to them individually, but also is really an issue for trying to stave off the pandemic. You mentioned maybe some physical assaults that have happened. This, if we want to think about this figurative assault on the public health system, has also moved into the courts, your reporting has found, efforts, legal efforts to restrict the abilities of public health officials to put orders in, into place. Tell me a little about that. That's right. We did a review of legislation in all 50 states, and we found that in at least 24 states, there's been some kind of legislation proposed during the pandemic to limit public health powers. There's many more expected to come because the legislative sessions for many states haven't even begun. But we've heard from a variety of communities that they fully expect that existing public health powers will be changed or diminished as a result of the politicization of the pandemic. Now, 
the Supreme Court has sort of signaled that they might support reducing public health power. So there's this 1905 Supreme Court case that found it constitutional for officials to issue orders to protect public health. In that case, it was a requirement for a smallpox vaccine. And that court case has been cited so many times. It's sort of a foundation of emergency powers and public health crises and responses. But there was a 5-4 ruling in November that basically looked at limits on religious worship during the um, ongoing pandemic. But legal scholars told us that it's likely to embolden state legislators and governors to further erode public health powers. You know, it's interesting you, you mentioned these kinds of powers that public health officials do have. Georgia has been under a state of public health emergency since the very early days of the pandemic, and it gives our state health officials the power to do things like mandate vaccines. Um, but I've actually spoken with a number of local public health officials who are really hesitant to go that far because there is this fear that exists among them of threats of violence, threats of pushback from, from the public. So I would wonder if, if the folks you've spoken to as well are really trying to navigate that. They have these powers, but if there is pushback and not a lot of buy-in, that, that power doesn't mean all that much. Absolutely. And a lot of public health officials have sort of mentioned this, that they hear this rhetoric that there's no accountability, you know, that they're not elected officials, but actually there is, you know, they respond to the public. Um, and to your point, sometimes it's sort of a negative thing in the sense that they feel threatened and like they can't do what they think is, is best. But in many cases, it's that they're trying to balance creating rules that the public is willing to follow. It's been extremely challenging for them, but they are, in many cases, people come from these communities. It's not that they are outsiders trying to enforce things on the, on the public. And I think that gets lost a little bit. So, you know, we wrote about this health officer in Kansas who says she's been called a Democrat for suggesting a, a mask mandate. And, you know, she's a lifelong Republican. She shares views about individual liberties. She has strong feelings that she's from this community. And just suggesting that there should be a mask mandate when they were facing a surge of cases has led people to really push back against her job in general. And they people find that really disturbing. You know, they've spent a lot of time studying and, and working and, and gaining expertise in how to fight off infectious diseases. And they feel that in many cases, they can't do what they think is best for the community, either because of public pushback or because elected officials don't agree with them. And Anna, I'm wondering what this means for our response to the pandemic moving forward. You know, we're starting to see here in Georgia and across the country, uh, vaccines are being made available. Vaccines are being rolled out to limited groups of people. This kind of pushback that certain segments of the population have had against public health and what that has meant for the public health officials leading efforts like vaccination. What does this mean for vaccinating people moving forward? So on the one hand, you have an extremely overworked workforce. In many cases, people, you know, haven't taken a day of vacation or have taken a couple days of vacation, including weekends since April. And they're already exhausted going into this giant vaccination campaign. Additionally, these departments are facing extreme funding shortfalls and say they haven't gotten anywhere near the support that they need financially from the federal government or organizationally. And so there's a lot of concern from these local departments about how they're going to carry out this giant vaccination campaign that's extremely complicated. You know, we have a very fragmented health system in the United States, so it's not 
like we have a national health service that everyone can just sort of make an appointment and you know go up to the door and, and get their shot when their time comes. It's much more complicated than that here. So that's one thing. On the other side, a lot of people expressed hope that the Biden administration has been much more supportive of the CDC generally and some of the guidelines and suggestions that they've made. And they're hopeful that under a new administration, having a message that is more unified might help with the public understanding of the measures that are being taken. So there's some hope that that might change things. But yeah, generally, there's a lot of concern about how the next several months, how they're going to roll out the vaccine with these very beleaguered health departments. And I'm wondering even further into the future, um, how do you recruit anybody for these positions when they are overworked, underpaid, and facing physical threats from the public by simply offering advice to make this situation better? I, I can't imagine how you even start to recruit people for these jobs to, to be the public health workers of the future. It's interesting. We um, In our series, we reported that there's been a huge spike in enrollment for public health programs. So the pandemic has certainly made people more aware of what public health does and spurred some interest in the field of public health. But new people, new trainees can't replace people who have decades of expertise navigating the politics of public health, understanding how to respond in infectious disease outbreaks. In many cases, people who navigated the HIV epidemic and, you know, learned how to use the system and laws and science to protect the public. You can't quickly replace that. So there's an enormous amount of concern that we've experienced this brain drain and that there's no way to fix that. Additionally, Once again, much like the recession, local and state governments are facing huge funding shortfalls. And so there's a lot of concern that even though there's been some infusion of cash over the last year, that there's going to be even more firings and even more uh, loss of funding and of positions in public health. Well, sure. And and that, that makes me think we've been hearing so often during this pandemic that you know, it's not a question of if this happens again, a infectious disease taking foothold like COVID-19 has, but a question of, of when. So these current problems really seem to have implications for our ability to fight a situation like this in the future. That's right. No one thinks this is going to be the last infectious disease outbreak, whether it's a disease we already know about or a new one. Many people expect that we'll see a growing number of Um, new infectious diseases as, you know, humans build more and more in wildlife areas, creating more contact with wildlife and viruses can move over um, from other animals, other species to humans. So yeah, this is not the last new pandemic. And it's certainly just one of many infectious diseases. And public health is the part of our government that's um, supposed to fend those off when they come. Anna Barry Jester is a reporter with Kaiser Health News. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's where you can also leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening.
donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.